HRN listeners. As we celebrate our 15th year, we are deepening our commitment to giving voice to the next generation of food system storytellers, and we need your help. Our internship and fellowship programs help activate new possibilities for underrepresented and underestimated young people through experiential journalism, audio engineering, and production training. Through these unique programs, HRN helps food equity stewards build essential workforce readiness skills that expand their potential and foster economic mobility. Please consider supporting these critical programs. And with a minimum donation, you can be entered to win a dinner for two at an amazing restaurant in one of eight cities and tickets to a concert at a great venue in one of those cities. We have incredible partners across the country who have donated as they also share our passion for helping to educate the next generation of food system storytellers. Check out heritageradionetwork.org 15 to donate and enter to win today. That's heritageradionetwork.org 15 to donate and enter to win today. And make sure you donate before March 31st. Thank you. Today's program was brought to you by New York Wines, reminding you to eat and drink local this Thanksgiving. For more information, visit newyorkwines.org. This is Michael Harlan Turkel, host of The Food Scene. You're listening to Heritage Radio Network, broadcasting live from Bushwick, Brooklyn. If you like this program, visit heritageradionetwork.org for thousands more. Welcome to Feast Your Ears. I'm Harry Rosenblum from the Brooklyn Kitchen, a cooking store located at 100 Frost Street in Williamsburg, Brooklyn. Join me every Wednesday as I talk with people about what they do and how it influences their personal food stories. This is a show about people, life, and food. Please take a moment to like the show on iTunes, provided you actually do enjoy it, uh, and reach out if you have any questions for me, um, and a review or feedback uh, would be welcome. Harry at thebrooklynkitchen.com is how you can find me. And you can find me on social media at the Foodballer. Today I'm going to try something a little new. Uh, at the top of the show, I'm going to read a short essay about something that I've been thinking about recently. Um, I'm going to try to do this every episode moving forward. Um, so let me know uh, what you think of it, if you like it, if you don't like it, if you think I'm on base, off base, whatever. So, as everybody I think who's listening to this is aware, but if you're listening far into the future, if you're listening in space, maybe you're not. But on Wednesday, November 9th, 2016, Donald J. Trump was declared the victor in what was certainly the strangest presidential election in my lifetime, probably the most divisive and mean-spirited campaign in history. The truths which are supposed to be self-evident seem to be hardly that to almost half of the country. And for the second time in my voting record, I have been part of the majority who has not seen their vote carried through to the highest office because of a strange twist we call the Electoral College. I'm not here to talk about or wax poetic about what I think we can and should do about this. My feelings on this whole thing change daily or even hourly as I try to navigate what I think, how I speak to friends with whom I share a political stance, or family with whom I disagree. Everyone is talking about what to tell our kids, at least in my, in my world. What do they tell their kids when Hitler was elected, or Pol Pot, or Stalin? Andy Borowitz wrote a good perspective on this for The New Yorker that I may yet use to explain this to my seven-year-old daughter. He said that what more than 59 million Americans did was something stupid, silly, and I would say worthy of performance art. Quote, imagine the stupidest thing you could ever do, like peeing on a stack of pancakes. Now imagine that the United States is a stack of pancakes. Millions of grown-ups just peed on it. So with that, welcome today to episode number 52 of Feast Your Ears. Uh, in the studio, I'm really pleased to have Helen Holliman, who's the editor-in-chief of Munchies, joining me. Hello. 
Thanks, Helen, for coming in. Thanks for having me. It's so yeah. exciting to be here. And you used to have a show. Yeah, it's uh, it used to be called You Look Hungry, and every week I miss being at Heritage because I feel like I looked forward to the pizza and this very serene oasis that is this beautiful recording booth. Yeah, I mean, that's I feel like some weeks that's how I feel about it. Um, some weeks it's like tearing my hair out on Tuesday night of who's my guest going to be because I don't have anybody <laughs> lined up. Um, but yeah, it is nice to come here and to know every week I'll be here. And, you know, it is a, it is nice get to watch people eat pizza. For those of you that haven't ever been in the booth, the booth is a shipping container behind Roberta's Pizzeria in Bushwick. And we have a window that looks out onto the dining room. So it's sort of like nobody really pays any attention to us. It's a good social experiment, for yeah, sure. Absolutely. And you can see, like, oh, yeah, that guy totally into pepperoni. So, <laughs> um, so Helen, would you introduce yourself and tell the listeners what, what you do? Well, uh, I am what you could call a nasty woman uh, in 2016. Uh, so I'm the editor-in-chief of Munchies, which is Vice's food website. Uh, we're the world's first global millennial food website. We're in seven languages worldwide, and we have readers in almost every country, it, it seems. Um, and we're really using food as a way to talk about contemporary culture. So we're really spotlighting human stories. You know, we might bring you in through a sandwich, and you might exit into music or enter in through war and exit through bread. Um, there's a thousand ways that we tell these stories, but the biggest thing that I think is the best way to describe what we do is we're kind of like a buffet. Uh, there's a little something for everybody, and the voices that are telling those stories are also very diverse. Yeah, I mean, I think that's a, that's, that is one of the great things about the site, is that it's not a site where, you know, whenever I go to something like, like the New York Times, right, as an example of like the pinnacle of media and, report, and reporting, um, and maybe it's because of the, the, you know, how old I am. But I mean, I remember the times arriving every morning and always feeling this like compunction to read it cover to cover and read the whole thing. And now, I mean, if you go to the website, like you could never do it. And I could barely ever even now get through the whole times, even in print. It's too big. So the idea that you can go to Munchies and you can pick something that interests you, whether that's, you know, watching Keep It Canada with Maddie Matheson, which is kind of like this out there travelogue kind of like food craziness following Maddie on all of his, you know, adventures, or you're reading some, you know, very serious reporting about food policy. I think that's great that you guys cover all of that ground. It's really, it's incredible. We're trying. I mean, it's kind of like, I wanted to always feel like the weirdest dinner party of your life where you're sitting next to like a Hells Angels biker, Renee Redzepi, my mom, and like someone who really doesn't care about food. And it's really the kind of overheard moment of those conversations that is what munchies is trying to achieve is that so. going to be thanksgiving at your house next week <laughs> probably probably after <laughs> this election over. probably yeah. <laughs> um how did you land advice so i mean your your kind of path into vice from from some of the reading that i've done about you um is that you worked in kitchens and you did some writing and you wrote for i think gq is that right um how did you end up at vice i've always called myself like the big Lebowski in food because when I when I was a young lass, uh, you know, food media wasn't really what it was today. You know, we had blogs. Um, there were the, you know, 
ultimate spots like gourmet and and food and wine. Um, and I remember at the time it was right when, uh, you know, Adam took over Bon Appetit and it was this really amazing moment because I think people started to realize like, wow, young people are starting to infuse this new perspective in food. And before that you had a lot of kind of older experts, um, and this idea of apprenticeship and, you know, that is continues to be very important, obviously. Uh, but you know, as a kind of early 20 something, I was like, I really like food, but I am not an expert. So I'm not going to sit here and try to start writing food stories and think that I'm an expert. So I basically, um, you know, did a thousand different things. I worked, I helped open milk bar and apprenticed in the kitchen to Christina Tosi. I was writing for GQ. Um, I used to work with Amanda Hester at Food 52 and Mark Bittman, um, working on, uh, actually his food politics hmm. research. Um, and at some point I really, you know, I think for any food writer out there who's freelancing, especially you completely understand this and live it every day. It's a very difficult path to take financially speaking. And I got to this point where, you know, I was a line cook. I had been front of house, back of house, et cetera. And I was just exhausted and, you know, I just didn't want to do it anymore. So I found this weird classified ad. I literally just said like looking for truffle dealer slash sorter. And, <laughs> you know, I thought what the, I love truffles. Like, yes, great. And I called, you know, the phone number and this voice on the other line was like, hello, yes, it's still available. Come in. <laughs> and so fast forward the next day, I go to Hoboken, New Jersey, and I look at this building that looks like where people are probably murdered. And I walked inside and there were like hundreds of people just running up and down the stairs panting. And I was I'm like, I'm watching this scene play out in my head. Like it's the movie <laughs> of your life. And like, I see you get on the path train, like in this very weird, like trying to use your Metro card and it doesn't work Confused, and getting exactly. off the train in Hoboken and like walking through a neighborhood. That's like kind of like Brooklyn, but everything's a little like twilight zone. Exactly. Yeah. And also it kind of felt like a stars hollow from Gilmore girls, a touch. <laughs> um, but eventually I quickly realized, Oh, there is a, uh, gym in this building and all these people are actually working out. And so, the so they weren't sorting truffles. No, okay. but it's, it reeked like it smelled like truffles. And so I opened the door and this 18 year old kid is there. And I was like, hi, is this the place? And he's like, yeah, sit down. So I worked for this literally truffle genius, um, Ian Perkaisa. Yeah. And, uh, I did that for years. So I was kind of like this weird figure because I kept freelance writing and then I'd go into kitchens and sell them truffles and they had no idea. Did all your clothes smell like truffles from working there? Sometimes <laughs> in the height of, especially the white truffle season, it was like stankonia. Like I just reeked of, you know, sort of like that raw garlic meets weed smell. Yeah. I imagine <laughs> you going to a restaurant and people asking if they can have the truffles and then being like, we don't, there's no truffles. <laughs> Basically. Yeah. yeah. <laughs> Um, you, you talk about sort of the, the younger sort of people generation coming into the food media, um, which, you know, I think it, it is really interesting to see that sort of be taken over. But I noticed in your Instagram feed that recently you were with someone who I would also probably and would maybe self-describe as a nasty woman. Oh, um, hell yeah. Diana Kennedy, who's like <laughs> the like 
queen of like nasty awesome women. old <laughs> like nasty women in food, right? So I didn't realize. I, I, Diana has done a couple of events with us at the Brooklyn Kitchen. I love her, and I didn't really know that she was in New York. But the idea of going to Namwa was my mom's favorite dim sum parlor when she lived in New York in the '60s. Oh wow! And so we always went there when I was a kid in the '80s when it was really dumpy. And, like, we'd go in there, but it was, like, this nostalgic thing for the family. And so I haven't actually been there since they've cleaned it up. I'm sure it's just as good. Oh, it's great. Um, but you had lunch with Diana there? Yeah. So there is a I'm, – I'm from Texas, from Austin. And a fellow Austinite, um, Elizabeth Carroll, who's a filmmaker, actually is doing a documentary about Diana. And um, I've had kind of a, a long – interesting uh history with diana in terms of just writing about her and and meeting her in random places and uh, so elizabeth was in town and said hey do you want to have lunch with diana and i was like uh yeah Yeah, the answer is never no (laughs) to that question but the thing is that you know we were supposed to meet at uh mr donahue's so it's at 230 mott or something like that and uh diana is 93 she took the subway to spring street and literally called elizabeth and was like Hello, dear. I'll be at 23 Mott. And she's like, no, 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 2.30 Mott. And she hung up. So for an hour, the two of us had to search all of Chinatown for Diana Kennedy. Amazing. Literally an hour. Of course, finally found her. Had she, um, by that time, found, like, three foods that were about to disappear from the planet? And like, <laughs> Well, Elizabeth called her 19 times on the phone, and uh, she didn't pick up. And finally she did. We found her in her leather pants, which she told yeah. me were her day leather. She oh, has night leather wow. as well. She, I've seen um, her in her awesome leather pants. I didn't realize there was a different wardrobe. Yeah, she's uh, <laughs> she's a bit, you know, a badass. Yeah. Um, so, yeah, and we had, you know, lunch at Namwa, and I just, I think that there will never be anyone else like her ever no, you know so. um she's just she's amazing so. yeah when she first walked into the brooklyn kitchen the first time that i met her the first thing she did after in, like after we met and introduced was like go rooting through the trash cans in in the kitchen in the in the in our sort of prep room dish room and to I, judge I, I, you I, yes, or absolutely 100 yeah, yeah. she was and, and i asked her why i was like i, I was like do you need something like she's like no i just want to see how much you guys are throwing away because i'm trying to figure out like if you know where you stand and kind of like are you actually doing what you say you do in terms of like using everything and respecting the animals and all that stuff and i was like wow that's yeah that's awesome i mean that's very you know <laughs> she doesn't mess around i mean no. she's still gardening she wakes up at five thirty every morning she gardens she does a little exercise and then she tries to write for like 45 minutes takes a siesta and then cooks all day it's awesome. It's good life. Yeah. <laughs> um, so you guys have this, you know, amazing um, sort of the vice media empire behind you at Munchies. And so, you know, the other thing that I think is really, you know, you guys have an incredible space in Williamsburg um, on Canton, South Second. And I think that it, uh, you know, it, it does a lot of things for you. But I'm curious to hear from you as someone who works every day, as someone who come, who's been there. I'm like, wow, this is a really cool office. You guys have all this space and you have a bar and you just built a kitchen, which I haven't seen yet since it was finished. And you have this roof deck. But, you know, for you, what's the best part of having that space? The people, I think. Um, you know, we have at this point 14 different websites uh, at the company. And I think we're really lucky in that uh you know, I've never worked with such intelligent people in my life before, just the amount of just brilliant people around me. And so all of us try to use them as resources constantly. Like, you know, I'll talk to like the vice news staff and be like, Hey, 
you know, back in June, we had this really um, intense war story that we did on Syrian bread and how ISIS is using it as a weapon of war. And so we kind of took you from the grain silos to the bakeries to the Svalbard seed vault, which I can never pronounce, um, in, uh, you know, Scandinavia and how that's actually impacting the global wheat supply. And had I not been able to talk to Vice News and be like, are we doing this properly? We never would have done that story. Um, so I think that we're very, very lucky in that, you know, we can talk to people in tech and, you know, just anything really. Um, and I think that that's goes back to the whole ethos of Munchies as well as Vice in general. It's, you know, it's youth driven and always has been, it always will be. And I think that, you know, our goal is always to shine the light on subculture when other people aren't doing that. Right. So. Do the stories ever get cross-posted among the sites, or do they stay as a single site? Yeah. Story? So people get super confused sometimes, because if you go on vice.com, you'll actually see what we call link outs. And so it's actually just a main feed of all of the other websites' content feeding uh -huh. into the main site. So it's kind of like vice.com is the head of the octopus, and we're all the tentacles. Got and it. they obviously do their own content as well. Right. But um but yeah, it's kind of cool. So nice. <laughs> We're going to take a short break and hear from one of our sponsors here at Heritage Radio. And uh, when we come back, I brought some snacks or munchies for us to try. Thanksgiving is a great time to support New York farmers, including local wineries. Find great white wines, red wines, and rosés from Long Island, the Hudson River region, the Finger Lakes, and beyond at New York City wine shops and restaurants. This Thanksgiving, New York Wines is proud to partner with Fleischer's Craft Butchery, which supports local farmers raising heritage breed turkeys in New York State. With a healthy dose of ingenuity and a collaborative winemaking culture, the number of wineries in New York has grown exponentially over the last 10 years, as has the quality of the wines they produce. New York is a world-class wine region, offering quality, variety, and value. The perfect trifecta for a bountiful Thanksgiving feast. For information on more than 400 New York wineries, please visit newyorkwines.org. Welcome back to Feast Your Ears. I'm Harry Rosenblum, and I've been speaking today with Helen Holliman, the editor-in-chief of Munchies. And so, given the name, I mean, obviously, I think that, you know, you talked earlier before the break about it being a youth-driven thing. I mean, you get the munchies when you smoke weed, right? That's sort of the original joke, I feel like. And I think that I think the site has sort of moved away from that to a certain extent. I mean, Vice, I remember Vice back in the 90s being very much like you know, sort of really hitting hard on like the drug thing and the alcohol thing and like how far can we stretch the boundaries of like, you know, can we like, you know, print naked people in our magazine and who's going to get pissed off and all that stuff. But I think it's come a long way as, a, as an organization. Yeah. I mean, it's funny because we actually, when we started the site, we were coming up with the names and we had about 500 ideas and we were told we can't call it Munchies because Munchies used to be a show that's now called Chef's Night Out. Uh. So we went through 500 names and finally our creative uh, director was like, hey, it's going to be munchies. And we were like, all right, well, I guess all the weed heads are going to be really excited about that. So, <laughs> um, yeah, do you guys ever like cross pollinate with uh, high times? Is that 
Well, no, but, you know, we definitely do a lot of weed coverage. Not yeah. because, like, you know, it's the vice way, but actually, like, weed content in America right now is super interesting, politically speaking. Sure. And also, like, with legalization and everything else, like, in the cooking space, um, chefs actually don't really know how to cook with weed all that well. No, they so, really don't. you know, it's a really revolutionary time right now. And I think yeah. for us, it's like we saw that open lane and took it and yeah. i think a lot of other sites looked at us and we were they were like what are they doing and right. now it's um you know we have all kinds of stuff but yeah it's a it's a popular topic yeah i mean our, our cooking with cannabis class that we launched about six months ago has been very popular yeah um, because it is something that's hard to understand and it's a whole new it's a whole new thing right i mean you know we're all used to like you know, getting super stoned in a dark basement when you're 17, like it's a very different thing to like, be like, let's have a dinner party and have marijuana, have a, a place at the table for lack of a better <laughs> way to describe it. But where we're not going to be like lying on the floor, all shit faced. Right. Yeah. Well also like, you know, weed in general at this point, I think it's a really interesting process because there's so many varietals, yeah. the flavor profiles and everything else. I mean, God bless Willie Nelson for so many reasons, <laughs> but I also would highly recommend taking a look at what he's trying to do with making weed organic and like kind of merging like big farm and weed practices together. Cause I do think at some point, maybe not all the country will be legalized, but when it does, it will be like any other ingredient. And we do need to right. kind of say, well, how is this being farmed? And, yep. and then how is it being used? Yeah. 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 So the snacks that I brought, um, as someone who at the head of, at the head of munchies, I think knows a thing or two about snacks. I'm sure you guys in the <laughs> office eat lots of snacks. Um, I brought you some of my favorites. Um, I brought the Anglewood United, Anglewood United Methodist peanuts, um, which come from the Anglewood United Methodist, uh, men in Rocky Mountain, North Carolina. Um, they're peanuts that they're my absolute favorite here. You should try them. Um, they are, they're made by a church. And the Methodist Church, but only the men make them, apparently, at least according to the label. They're super good. They're like the crunchiest, saltiest peanuts. And the story is that they started making the peanuts as a fundraiser to build their new church back in, like, the 50s. And they sold them, and they were so popular that they continued to make them. And we found them years ago and decided to start carrying them. And originally, we had to send them a check, and they would wait for it to clear before they would send us the peanuts. Now we have a better relationship. They ship them, and we pay them. And whatever but they're like the best peanuts very hard to open and i would not recommend having a jar around if you were stoned because you can very easily even when you're sober eat that entire jar sitting in your desk i just want to point something out it's men making roasted nuts at a church why no women are they just like i'm sorry this is a man's job to roast the nuts it's a very good question i don't know i maybe i could get them on the uh, on the radio <laughs> show and we can talk about the history of the peanuts i mean I, it would be very interesting to find out i don't know my my sense of it from originally sort of looking at their website <clears throat> looking at the story is that it was a men's group within the congregation that decided this was a project they were going to take on as a fundraiser thing so other people might be out asking for donations, you know, on Saturday morning and having a car wash, and they decided they were going to make peanuts. So it's not like, you know, female sushi makers and the whole BS of like, oh, their blood temperature is higher and all that. I don't think so. Great. Okay. I mean, or maybe it was that the women were tired of being in the kitchen and they were like, we're not making any more peanuts. <laughs> you guys want to make peanuts, but you got to make them. So they're really good nuts. They are. They're really good. And then I also brought um, havocorn chips, oh. which... Anybody who is from or has ever been near Southern California hopefully knows about Havacorn chips um, made by Hare Krishna's 
in Santa Monica. Uh, I think they're in Santa Monica. I didn't know that. But, oh, man. Sorry, they're in Laguna Beach. Um, but these have a weird story. So we first started carrying these um, because Sage, who used to be the general manager of Union Pool, walked into the original Brooklyn Kitchen location uh, probably about 10 years ago with a half a bag of them and threw them at my wife, Taylor, and said, I can't eat any more of these. You have to finish them. And we completely fell in love with them because they're the best corn chips. They have soy sauce on them, which is what makes them, I think, so good, and they're so crunchy. But they they won't sell to us directly, so we have a sort of weird, I can't really, I'm not going to tell anybody about it, but we have a weird way that we get them on the East Coast because we can't really buy them from, direct from the manufacturer. It is my kryptonite. Yeah. It's like, I used to work at uh, in the office at Diner and Marlowe and & Sons and... I would literally like every day go into Marlowe and Daughters and just buy the Hava chips and yeah. get dip and yep. I would just yep. go through it. So then I also brought one of my favorite dips, which is made right near here in Greenpoint, right near your office, um, by Acme Smoked Fish, and it's their whitefish salad. And actually dipping the Hava corn chips into the Acme Smoked Whitefish Salad, to me, is the nirvana of snack food. This is like the holy trinity of America right here, <laughs> you know? We have Hare Krishnas. Yeah. We have some nice Christian men. <laughs> yeah. Some nice Jewish men, yeah. perhaps, yeah, oh yeah. or ladies. For sure. Definitely All Jewish blending together. Yeah. Have That's, you ever been to the Acme factory? I haven't, but I've heard about they do monthly wholesale or Every something. Every Friday morning. Damn, they to sell go. to the public. It's the only time they sell to the public. And it, it that is, I mean, that is a real interesting picture of, like, the changes in North Brooklyn. Because you can be standing there, and there'll be Hasidic women, and there'll be hipster dudes, and there'll be, like, you know... Jewish guys from the Bronx who, you know, conserve whatever. They're not, you know, they're not orthodox, but they're, you know, so they come to buy their smoked fish. And then you have all the people working there. And, you know, there's Mexican guys that work there and black guys that work there. I mean, it's a really cool New York melting pot. Yeah. And everybody stands in line. I think it's from like 8 to 12 on Friday mornings. I got to go. Yeah. I got to go. What's the one thing right now that just anything that you can't stop eating that isn't these? Gosh, I'm usually the one asking the questions on this show. I don't usually get asked the questions. The one thing that I can't stop eating right now that isn't those, I would have to say it's, and it, I mean, it's not, I'd have to say rice, mm. but in like lots of different forms. I'm not just like eating plain white rice, but like I'm on this kind of like in this rabbit hole of like eating wild rice and eating sushi rice and eating, oh, we have a visitor at the window knocking on the window. <laughs> Patrick Martin's founder of Heritage Radio just knocked on the window here. No one does that. It's like breaking the fourth wall. Um, Whoa. I would say rice. I mean, I, and, and doing all kinds of different things with rice. I mean, uh, or, you know, if I can extend that to say my rice cooker is actually the thing that I'm most into. Um, just made a recipe out of Lucky Peaches 101 Easy Asian Recipes um, yesterday <laughs> where you put the rice and you mix the chicken and the shiitakes and oyster sauce and soy sauce and everything and you put it all in the rice cooker and then you just turn it on. Oh, man. And it's so easy and with two kids and working and having to have dinner ready on the table. Like, it's just amazing. The rice cooker has a timer. So I set it up yesterday morning and I set it to be ready at 6 o'clock. And we walk in the door and you hear the right, our rice cooker sings. If you have a Japanese rice cooker, it plays a little ditty. You hear it sing <laughs> as you open the door. And it's like, oh, dinner's ready. It's amazing. So lots of exploration of rice. I've been making my own amazake with koji, um, wow. with koji rice, which is super easy and just feels like... 
it feels like this weird, you know, like almost like playing God or like this weird alchemy thing because you take these like dried pieces of rice and you mix them with hot rice and then you like leave them in the oven overnight where it's warm, like if your light is on or the pilot light. And in the morning, what you have is sugar. I mean, it's like, it's like maple syrup. Gosh. And it's like, so it's like magic. I mean, I know from my intellectual self that it's the mold that it's, you know, creating an enzyme that's converting the starch into sugar, but it's way more fun to be like, it's just like magic, just like Shazam. <laughs> and then there you go. You have sweetener. Well, you know, one person that you are reminding me of is actually Britney Spears because she is very into rice huh. these days. I don't know if I've never you've been heard compared about this, to her, but, but. but she's a huge rice fanatic apparently. And it just cooks hundreds of styles of rice in Las huh. Vegas when she's not performing. So, wow. Yeah. All right. Maybe I can get her on the show. You should. And we can talk about rice. I think that I would definitely listen to that show. <laughs> that would be awesome. So um, I wanted to ask you if you think, I mean, right now, obviously, we've been over the last 10 years or so on this kind of like upward arc of food and food being cool and chefs becoming cool and this search for weird ingredients. And like, you know, 10 years ago, I mean, maybe on Heritage Radio, but I mean, 10 years ago, if I met someone, I was like, I'm making Amazaki, I'd get like blank stares. And now like 30 percent of people might know what I'm talking about, even if they're not in the food world. So, you know, food is really cool right now. Do you think that we're headed for like a recession of food coolness? You know, I think about that a lot. And I, the thing that I keep coming back to is actually kids. Um, because I do think that, do you ever watch MasterChef Junior? Mm-hmm. Once in a while. It's like one of the greatest shows on TV, in my opinion, because you watch like 10 year old kids be like, so I made a sous vide uh, duck and they go into this whole description and you're like, oh my God, you're 10. And it made me realize that like, we're teaching a whole new generation that's actually so much more advanced than we are in the way that they think about food. And so therefore thinking about that generation and what they're going to do with the food system, my hope is that, yeah, it keeps getting better. I think it's just like making sure that we're giving them the right tools to keep that going in a good direction. And uh, so what is the, and in that direction, you know, I mean, I think that's, it's a fascinating thing to think about because it's not, you know, we're not going to see like the dark ages again, right? I mean, we live in the information age, which is so different than history has ever been before. And even if we made a comparison to say like the 1950s were really boring as far as food went because it became industrialized, we're past that in a way where like the, it, it would be nearly impossible for the regression to be back to something like that. Um, for some place like Munchies, like what does the future look like for you? In that realm where if, if, you know, if the idea and if we base it on the concept that like us and everyone our age doesn't actually know as much as these kids for whom you're making the content more and more. Yeah, I mean, I think for us, like like I said, it it is a global site. So we're not only seeing kids in the U.S., but like we're we're getting comments from kids like in I always mispronounce it Cutter. Mm-hmm. Qatar, Qatar, yeah. uh, you know, emailing us and, ha- you know, kids in like Malaysia just being like, hey, what's up? Like, I read this thing or I saw this thing. So I think that is our obligation. And, you know, moving forward, especially in the next four years, you know, apathy is not acceptable, especially food politics and being like a mindful eater, uh, as well as just diversity. You know, it's like our job as a media platform to make sure that we're showing kids that like, Food is individuality. Food is who you are. And it also is community. And I'll be damned if we don't celebrate 
what is great about this country as well as everywhere else, which is like diversity. Yeah. So <laughs> absolutely. I mean, that, that's great. And I think there's a real opportunity to provide that information and not to rely on what people say, right? I mean, to I know I said this wasn't going to be about Donald Trump, but to go back to Trump for a second, you know, there was a quote recently where he said he prefers to eat at large chains, a la McDonald's or Jack in the Box or Carl's Jr., because you know that the food is safe, was what he said, which to me, like, it hurts me, like, in the deepest part of my soul. Not that that food isn't safe, and oftentimes it can be, it is unsafe, but that that would be held up as being safer than somewhere small. And the idea that anyone with a small business that is serving food, or not serving food, but that anyone with a small business would be making choices that would put their customers in jeopardy is just crazy to me. I think it's, you know, you have to remember to, like, looking at all the political candidates, like Obama over the last eight years, look at his track record of where he ate in Washington. And I would be really curious to see where Trump will eat. If he even goes there, he's talking about wanting to live, still live in New York, right? Yeah. Keep Fifth Avenue Keep shut Trump down Tower. forever. <laughs> <laughs> Nobody will ever be able to go there. Um, I had another question here. I have, lo- I have lots of questions. I always write way more questions than... Oh, I know what I was going to ask you. So as, as sort of like a, a, a closing question, um, I wanted to, to ask, you know, as someone who, you know, uh, munchies, I think, is at the forefront of reporting lots of food fads, and sometimes that's fun, right? I mean, you do need viewership. You want to, you know, tell people the, the latest thing. I just had lunch at Ichiran Ramen around the corner. I don't know if you've been there yet. Um, you know, they've got a, a number of, of locations in Japan. This is the first one here. I find it to be locationally an odd spot to put a ramen restaurant, but that's fine. Um, also weird to be in a space that essentially could be completely Japanese having been to Japan, except that all the signs are in English and the people talking to you are not Japanese. It, like that was really, there was like a weird disconnect for me in that. Cause I was like fully, when I walked through the door felt like, oh, okay, I need to navigate this Japanese menu that I don't really understand, but I'm just going to pick and choose. And then it was all in English. Suddenly it was really <laughs> strange. Um, but you know, what do you think like is the most overrated food fad. I mean, I think things get picked up. I mean, you know, we live in Williamsburg and I went to get bagels the other day and my daughter was like, oh, I want a rainbow bagel. And I was like, God, why? (laughs) It's like gross looking and it doesn't even taste like a bagel. If it tasted like a bagel, I could, I would get it right. Like clear Pepsi. I remember when that came out, it tasted like Pepsi and everybody's (laughs) like, it's so weird. It's clear. It tastes like Pepsi. Like if a rainbow bagel tasted like an everything bagel, that to me would be interesting. Yeah. But it's just gross looking. (laughs) So what do I think is most... What do you think is the most, like, overrated? I mean, like... You know, I don't know. I feel like Munchies focuses more on, like, the weird stuff. Like, the... I think it's a $200 stuffed squirrel beer uh, vessel that you can drink out of. But um, was, like, a big thing recently. Uh, You know, yeah. I would say Rainbow. Like, just Instagram. The impact that Instagram has on food trends. um, I think it's super fascinating because just the global impact of that too. You're seeing people in Taiwan who are like making, uh, the rainbow bagel, or we watched like in South Korea recently, like somebody made a cronut, like a month after Dominique Ansel put it out because of Instagram. So I don't know, for me, it's like, I don't, I, 
yeah, maybe the rainbow bagel. I mean, I smelled it. I've never had one. It seemed uh, like I would rather have a bagel from like Issa Bagel. Yeah. Um, but uh, but yeah, I mean, ultimately, I don't know. I think there's been a lot of great trends too this year. Like you know, matcha has been super popular, yep. but it's also like very healthy for you and yeah. delicious and makes you feel like you are about to um, go crazy and and cry at the same time yeah. if you have too much of it. Right. But um. Well, and I, and I think, I mean, you mentioned Instagram, so I mean, I think we, it's also important, and I think you're right, to recognize that the other things you see on there, I mean, you see people doing really cool stuff with vegetables. You see people making really amazing soups. You see people cooking in really, like, bizarre, out-of-the-way locations or, you know, using homemade ovens. I mean, there's a lot of cool stuff mm-hmm. out there that isn't just, like, a clickbait fad thing. I would just say, like, it's not even in a restaurant or, like, a shop or anything, but just trying to do the, like the ultimate like you know that's like probably an instagram video that somebody did and it involves like a the largest hamburger of all time or maybe it's a hamburger cake or whatever uh food related guinness world records kind of gross me out it freaks me out you know but i also i'm gonna be honest on the weekends i find it soothing to watch cake decorating videos on youtube to to relax to unwind so i don't know Uh, (laughs) candy making instagram videos are pretty cool Oh, yeah. I mean, you could I've fallen into so many just sort of visual K-holes on Instagram for hours of just like watching things like that. Do you have a favorite Instagram feed that you like are really? Yeah. Like that you're really excited when they post. Oh, man. Uh, I mean, there's so many good Instagrammers out there these days. I feel like I'm the Martha Stewart of Instagram where like all of my food photos just look totally scary and you don't want to like them. Um, dang, that's a good, I mean, who's your favorite? I knew you were going to ask me that. I knew it. <laughs> I knew it. I knew it. Um, I mean, I, you know, I mean, I, I happen to know him personally, but I like Peter Meehan's feed. Oh, he's got every, that guy is first of all, one of the funniest people I know, but 100%. every time his caption, it's always the caption that really does it for me. The caption's good, know? but I also like it, you know, I mean, I don't, I don't generally like people that just post pictures of food. Yeah. Matt Jennings has yeah. a really good feed <laughs> because it's sometimes this really amazing food that he's making at Townsman and sometimes it's just a goofy picture of him and sometimes it's his kids and like, it's sort of, it really, I feel like when you look at that feed and I know Matt also, so maybe that's why, but like, it's sort of like, oh yeah, that's Matt and his family and his kids and his life. It's not like, oh, look at this really rad food that I ate. And then look at this other really rad food that I ate. And then look at this really awesome ramen that I made. Like, yeah, it's not just all about, I don't know, proving something, I guess. Totally. Well, yeah. And I also think that like, it's weird. It's strange to think that we keep documenting our lives now through images of food. I don't know what that means about my life, but yeah. I mean, <laughs> there's some crazy statistic and I'm sure it's even changed. And this was a couple of years ago that the amount of visual content that gets created every day now in the world is equal to like every piece of visual content that was created up to like 1950 or something in history. I mean, some crazy amount of content and visual imagery that gets created daily on the planet now. But what happens when like there isn't an electrical plug to keep that going? I mean, I, will that ever happen? I mean, in, in Africa, like, if you can't plug in your phone, there's people with, like, a generator hooked up to a bicycle, and they that's how they charge their phones, where there's no infrastructure for that. So, I mean, it is it is an interesting question. I don't know. We'll, we may never see the end of that, yeah. that other side. The apocalypse may not come. <laughs> yeah, although I heard that a comet almost came, or an asteroid almost came within, like, in very close to the Earth 
like two days before the election. But isn't it better not to know that stuff? I mean, yeah, historically, definitely. people didn't know <laughs> that there was a comet maybe coming in like, I mean, in Pompeii, right? Would it have helped them if they knew that the volcano was going to explode? Not I mean, really. Maybe just to throw like an awesome party, yeah. you know? Yeah, that's true. Before you die. but. Right. Well, Helen, it's been great having you on the show. Um, any uh, any last words before the apocalypse? Um, buy your canned food while you can. Uh, no, I think... Uh, or make your canned food. Support your local food store. Support your, your neighbors. Um, now more than ever, we have to be active participants in democracy and, and read and know your knowledge and know that your voice matters. Yeah, I'm, last week, <clears throat> the day after the, elec- the election, Taylor sent out a, an email to, to our Brooklyn Kitchen list about sort of her feelings about it. And I think one of the most poignant things that she said is that, like, we are our bunker. Like, the community that we exist in is our bunker to hide and sort of be safe from all these things. Um, and that that requires diversity and it requires sort of knowing people and it's not about shutting yourself away by yourself with your family it's about reaching out and sort of making the community stronger. i mean i'm ready to fight in 2017 for a lot of things and uh i'm excited cool. well thank you for coming on the show thank you so much for having me you can follow helen at h hollyman on twitter and at helen hollyman on instagram and uh, you can take a look at some of her older stuff. There's not a lot of new stuff that I don't think at youlookhungry.com. And that's the letter U, then lookhungry.com. Um, and check out munchies.tv for everything everything munchies related to. Um, thank you for listening today to Feast Your Ears. A big thank you to Kristen Baylor, who's my producer here, and David Tadashore, who engineers this show every Wednesday. You can find Feast Your Ears, as well as lots of other great shows at heritageradionetwork.org and on iTunes and Stitcher and wherever else you get your podcasts. Perhaps if you don't have electricity, you can get a bike and pedal really fast and then you can get your podcasts. I'm not sure. And you can follow me on Instagram at The Foodballer. Talk to you next week. listening to heritage radio network food radio supported by you for our freshest content and to hear about exclusive events subscribe to our newsletter enter your email at the bottom of our website heritageradionetwork.org connect with us on facebook instagram and twitter at heritage underscore radio heritage radio network is a non-profit organization driving conversations to make the world a better fairer more delicious place And we couldn't do it without support from listeners like you. Want to be a part of the food world's most innovative community? Rate the shows you like, tell your friends, and please join our community by becoming a member. Just click on the beating heart at the top right of our homepage. Thanks for listening.